This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. Well, thank you everyone for being uh, here tonight and taking some time out of your day to be here and to learn more. Um, I was writing down all of the the reasons why you were here. Um, and a lot of that common theme is, is to learn more and, and to, to really learn, to expand your knowledge um, and talk about how things maybe have changed or will change. Um, so to get started, um, I'm going to introduce myself. Um, my name is Eva Alexander. I'm the Executive Director at Lighthouse Immigrant Advocates. I've been with the organization since November of last year, so it's been a short period of time. Um, but we are a young and mighty organization. Um, and as a disclaimer, I am not a lawyer, so I will not be able to answer any um, questions in terms of specific situations or give you legal advice, um, unfortunately. But um, just want to put that out there at the beginning of everything. Um, so I do have a presentation that I'd, I'd like to share, and I'll give you some time at the end to ask questions. There might be, there's a couple times in there where I ask for your feedback, um, and so feel free to throw answers in the chat. And um, if Brian can help me by reading those out loud, I don't know if I'll be able to see them with the presentation, but your help would be greatly appreciated there. And so if, if, are there any questions before we get started? And I can go ahead and start sharing. No, okay. I'm gonna stop my video and share so that it's um, a little bit easier here. So bear with me. So you can see the presentation now? Yes. Looks yes. Great. yes. Perfect. I cannot see my notes anymore, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> But you can see the presentation, so that's all that matters. Um, and it, okay, I think I got it. I'm not going to touch anything else okay. for now. Thanks for bearing with me while I uh, got that up on the screen. Um, so let's get started. Um, so today I am going to do a presentation called Othering. Um, I know I heard a couple of people saying that you've been to a few presentations of ours, so I don't know if this is the one that you were introduced to, but um, my presentation today is about othering. And you'll hear this term um, over and over, and we'll go over this term. Um, but for now, know that this presentation is called Othering. Um, Lighthouse Immigrant Advocates really helps families here in our communities. And behind every case, there's typically a whole family that is affected by one member um, and their change of status. And just to, before we get started, I'd like to point out that the development of immigration as a significant social problem and issue began to some degree in the 1930s. Um, so my presentation will give you a little bit of brief historical context, what othering is, and we'll tie it back to present day, and then we'll talk, to, we'll talk together about distinct action steps that we can take. So the othering of immigrants is not a new practice. Here we go. And it's not a new term. We will dive into this in a couple of slides, but for now, try to gather some context clues, its meaning, and then we'll compare your findings with the terms definitions in a, a couple of slides. U.S. history is marred by a multitude of exclusionary and othering immigration laws and policies. It started with the Alien and Sedition Act in 1799, and then the Exclusion Act in 1882, directly targeting a specific minority group. This is the first time in history that the U.S. had a specific law that targets a minority group. 1892 marked the opening of Ellis Island and the extension of the Chinese exclusion through the Geary Act. It's important to note here that prior to 1924, there was no legal way to come to the United States. You just showed up and hoped they'd like the color of your skin and that they didn't find any communicable diseases. In 1907, 
Amid growing prejudice towards the influx of Japanese immigrants, Japan and the U.S. entered into an agreement to limit Japanese immigration to the, U to the U.S. In 1924 is when we see the birth of the modern-day quota system through the Immigration Act of 1924, which limits the number of immigrants allowed into the United States on a yearly basis through nationality quotas. The new law naturally favored immigration from Northern and Western European countries. So just three countries, Great, Great Britain, Ireland, and Germany account 70% of all available visas. Immigration from Southern, Central, and Eastern Europe was limited. The act completely excluded immigrants from Asia, aside from the Philippines, which at this point is an American colony. In 1942, there were war labor shortages, which resulted in the creation of the Bracero program, inviting laborers from the South to fill gaps in the labor markets in the US. The large influx of mostly Mexican people was highly encouraged by the federal government and the Braceros were regarded as heroes for helping the American war effort. That same year, FDR authorized the internment which is the state of being confined as a prisoner for political or military reasons of Japanese immigrants, over 60% of which were legitimate U.S. citizens. And this was after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Hundreds of thousands were detained and held until 1945. Some camps remained even open until 1946. During this period, there were no recorded incidents of espionage that had occurred to instigate or prolong Japanese internment. It wasn't until recently that the U.S. apologized for the unlawful and inhumane treatment of Japanese residents and citizens. In 1952, the U.S. passed the Immigration and Nationality Act, at least the first iteration, which formally did away with the exclusion of Asian, Asian immigrants. In 1965, Lyndon B. Johnson amended the Immigration and Nationality Act to implement the new quota system. The former system, as you'll recall, excluded Asian immigrants and favored white European immigrants. The new quota system made it easier for the existing white immigrant families to bring their families to join them, while other immigrants, such as Asians and Latinos, who had not had opportunities to lawfully immigrate to the United States, were at a distinct disadvantage due to prior exclusion of their ethnic groups. Within the span of a decade, the anti-immigrant views began to shift from a yellow peril, so Asian communities, towards people of slightly darker skin color. Do you remember that um, Bracero's program where they were heroes for helping during the wartime time effort? Well, in 1954, the U.S. used military tactics to round up about 1.4 million Latino immigrants and return them to Mexico by bus. Most of these immigrants had entered lawfully in response to labor demands in the United States during the war times. A large percentage of those caught up in these raids were citizens. We, of course, cannot talk about the history of immigration policy without talking about 9-11. This was a reactionary turning point for the crackdown on undocumented immigrants in the United States. Many of us remember this day and the fear it inspired. This isolated incident would serve as political fuel to ignite fear and sway citizens' hearts with televised evidence of the threat that those hailing from foreign lands would pose. The government didn't isolate the fear to a single terrorist group, but instead applied the fear to all foreigners, all alien others, sweeping up in their net undocumented laborers who had been longtime residents in the United States. The Patriot Act and the creation of the Department of Homeland Security followed in the years after the attack. In an article written by Professor Absen Furman at the University of Tacoma in 2003, President Bush announced Operation Endgame, whose mission consisted of a 10-year plan as proclaimed by the Department of Homeland Security to promote the, the public safety and national security by ensuring the departure from the United States of all removable aliens. So I'm going to go ahead and read that again because I can, I can tend to read in fast when I'm nervous. But 
So President Bush announced Operation Endgame, whose mission consisted of a 10-year plan as proclaimed by the Department of Homeland Security to promote the public safety and national security by ensuring the departure from the United States of all removable aliens. In one single sentence, DHAs characterized all undocumented immigrants as the dangerous other. Meaning, if the people of the United States are to be safe and the country secure, every undocumented immigrant must be apprehended, detained, and removed from our society. Even though Operation Endgame didn't, didn't specific, specifically identify wetbacks or Chinese or Japanese, the policy is still reminiscent of the 1954 Operation Wetback, especially when we look at statistics. Just seven years after the program began in 2010, 97 of all deportees were Latinos. And of those, 73% were Mexican nationals. So nearly all deported immigrants in 2010 were Latino. Next in history, in 2005, we have Operation Streamline, or OS, as you may hear me refer to it. The sole purpose of this is to criminalize undocumented immigrants. The goal of the policy was to deter immigrants from crossing the U.S.-Mexican border by prosecuting immigrants for undocumented entries, resulting in a misdemeanor misdemeanor or a felony conviction. Prior to this, criminal prosecution was reserved only for repeat entrants. The result of Operation Streamline is an unprecedented increase in, crim in criminal caseloads, quadrupling after OS's implementation, creating immense burdens for the district court courts along the border, diverting critical resources from actual serious criminal proceedings, while also creating an immensely lucrative opportunity for private prison companies. In order to efficiently move immigrants prosecuted under OS through the court system, they are actually tried conjointly in groups of 40 to 80 defendants, including providing one legal counsel by a group lawyer. This doesn't exactly fit with the Founding Fathers' plan for due process of law. Prior to OS, unauthorized entry was a civil violation. It's now prosecuted as a serious crime, but only for the select immigrants crossing the U.S.-Mexico border in specifically designated areas. In 2013, almost 100,000 non-citizens were pr prosecuted from unauthorized border crossing. This is an increase of 76% 70, since 2009. The Pew Research Center reports the increase in illegal re-entry convictions over the past two decades accounts for 48% of the growth in total federal court convictions. Border prosecution, prosecutions are also responsible for the most significant growth in border detention since 2005, resulting in severe overpopulation of federal prisons. Secure communities is another um, is another policy, and see how there is a trend of the naming of these policies and securities um, policies and laws. They they use the word security, you know. They use the word, you know, the wording that they use is a very safe wording, and it, it's very I think making people swayed one way versus the other. It was first introduced in 2008. It requires jails to run fingerprints of all RSTs through ICE databases, regardless of whether the RST was charged with a crime. So that means locally to translate that if somebody is driving above the speed limit and they get detained, by law, the police department has to run the fingerprints through ICE. The Obama administration further expanded the program. This particular program remains in place despite resistance from cities, counties, and states nationwide who see it as a threat to public safety, creating diminished trust in law enforcement. Furthermore, ICE and current and past administrations have explicitly stated their number one priority for removal is to pursue criminal immigrants. Remember the mantra of the Obama administration, felons, not families. The enforcement statistics tells a much different story. In 2010, 
3,600 people apprehended under the secure communities were U.S. citizens. 79% of immigrants deported were deemed non-criminal or were without charge or conviction. Secure Communities was suspended by the Obama administration November 2014 through January 2017. The Trump administration reinstated it on January 25th of 2017. ICE boasts more than 43,300 convicted criminal aliens have been removed as a result of Secure Communities since its reactivation. Again, though, roughly three quarters of those removed were without actual criminal conviction. This demonstrates once again, this was likely a pretense for expedited removals. Quoting ICE, explaining what security communities is for, this is an initiative to help DHS identify removable aliens arrested for crimes. At all times, ICE retains authority to make appropriate decisions against removable aliens consistent with its priorities and resources based on individual facts and circumstances, regardless of whether a criminal conviction is obtained. So while it's no longer politically correct to call for the mass removal of certain nationalities or have an operation designed specifically to remove a group, we still have policies policies giving harmless titles using the guise of community safety to apprehend and remove other populations. The point of this history lesson is to show the U.S. has a long history of intentionally designing anti-immigrant and racist laws, policies and campaigns that feed on people's fear of the other or unknown. Unfortunately, anti-immigrant propaganda throughout history is like pollution. We can never be fully rid of it. These laws and policies have had long-lasting and harmful impacts resulting in, for example, widespread and deeply rooted Asian American stereotyping and hate speeches in crimes. Recognizing the tropes, the false rhetoric, the propaganda, becoming aware of bad history repeating itself, and confronting certain powerful members of society who are continually reinforcing the fear of other is one of the first steps in building trust with our immigrant neighbors. We need to understand, truly understand the context within which they live and how that impacts them psychologically, physically, and emotionally. This is the context for the ethnically diverse immigrant in the United States. From the very beginning, immigration law has been about excluding people. It's about telling people that they don't belong. Quoting again the article written by Professor Epson Furman, there is a tendency to view refugees and immigrants not as human beings, listening to a... but in terms of their perceived worth as a welcome, as we welcome immigrants when there is clear need for labor and mark them return to sender after they have served their purpose. Even within Ottawa County, we have a tendency to define the worth of equity and inclusion work or refugees or immigrants in general by the relative economic value to the county. This, in and of itself, is an extremely dehumanizing and othering. Okay, so what is othering? So you've heard me say this concept. Other or othering is the way humans define and secure their own positive identity through the stigmatization of an other. We often do so by focusing on markers of social differentiation, such as, such as race, geography, ethnicity, economics, or ideologies. Othering is often used interchangeably with racism, xenophobia, nativism, and discrimination. At the very least, they're all related concepts. Othering creates a power imbalance resulting in an atmosphere of us versus them. Othering is most often done by another, more powerful person or group. It's often used as a method to dehumanize or devalue or destroy groups seen as other or as threat to a dominant group. Immigrants are particularly susceptible to othering. First, they often speak a different language, have different cultural practices and dress, perhaps even look different. They're identifiable, often externally, 
as different from the dominant social groups. Often though, this otherization is further exacerbated by federal government, which not only gives them a legal identity of other, but also labels them as outside of the law and for a designation of potential danger. One author actually writes, they are classified as subjects for regulation and control, aiming to protect society from the economic, demographic, and social dangers they pose. Their definition as dangerous locates them in an isolated place with its own social meaning for them and for society. Often, exclusion takes three forms. The physical exclusion, which is attention or deportation. Social exclusion, is, which is a result of the labels and harmful myths branded by mainstream society. And finally, civically excluded due to the inability to participate in the rights given to those that are granted citizenship. Push factors. One of the things that we fail to keep in mind when we think about refugees and asylum seekers is that these are people who do not want to leave their homes. False rhetoric tells us that these folks are coming to take our jobs, infiltrate our communities with drugs and gangs, and disrupt our way of life. But the reality is that they are forced to leave their homes. We have not met one refugee or asylum seeker here at LIA who has been glad to leave their home. It was necessary to leave, but it wasn't something they would have chosen to do had they not been forced to. Certain things we call push factors, quite literally push people and force them to leave their homes. Those of us who have experienced lives of relative privilege don't really ever have to consider what it would take to push us from our homes. But parents and families across the globe have had to make this decision because those worst case scenarios became a reality for them. Another thing we fail to take into consideration is our own role in these push factors. Climate change is a huge reason a lot of people are displaced from their homes. The other big push factor is economic hardship resulting from things like NAFTA and unencumbered capitalism that thrives on the cheapest labor and putting small businesses out of business across the globe. A close examination of our U.S. economy and the way it thrives on corrupt and unchecked corporations and industries that fuel climate change, while it supports our capitalist values and earns the most money, is the primary push factor driving immigration to the United States. So the U.S has quite literally created its own border crisis, crisis. And those who stand to benefit most from perpetuating the systems that created those push factors are the ones mostly loudly perpetuating this border crisis farce. It's also important to note here that the media loves this border crisis story. It gets likes, clicks, and makes money. The media pushed the border crisis narrative long before the Trump administration was even a thought in the American public's mind. In fact, in the book, White Backlash, the political scientist authors discovered that even though the liberal learning New York Times negative stories on immigration outweigh the positive ones by three to one. They also explained that if this type of immigration coverage continues, more white Americans will align more closely with right-leaning perspectives on immigration. So to understand what we're saying here is people don't leave somewhere if they are happy there. They're either being pushed or pulled out of their country. So what we're trying to do is helping to understand that there are certain factors that keep you rooted somewhere and people don't willingly choose to leave their country. Usually there's a lack of education, opportunity, persecution, or government corruption, lack of religious freedom. People don't just wake up in the morning and decide to come to a country that they don't know anything about undocumented by risking their lives. So harmful messaging, before I put the pictures that are part of this slide, another danger of othering is that humans hear a message often enough, if they keep hearing that message, they begin to believe that message. Stereotype threat is one of sample of this. For those of you who haven't heard it, it is when people are aware that they belong to a particular social group or class, and this awareness in turn negatively affects their performance. In other words, 
they begin to confirm negative stereotypes about the group. So here's what I need your help. Please type in the chat some stereotypes. They don't have to be about um, minority groups, but that you've heard. For example, girl, um, girls are bad at math is one common stereotype. What are some others that you've heard? And I'm not sure that I can see the chat. Our uh, former president talked about uh, people crossing the border as uh, gang members, uh, rapists, and criminals. Yeah. Um, thank you. That actually brings me to my slide. This slide represents one word, two, that is often used as a is and is an example of othering. Yep, aliens. Mm -hmm. That's right. Oh. Alien or illegal alien takes it one step further, right? So knowing what we've just learned about the other, what happens when somebody is always referred to as an alien, as foreign, as illegal? How do you think that influences someone's sense of identity and self? Would you feel welcome into a community that categorizes you as an other? Some other examples, um, you know, we talked about threat to public safety. That's a way to do other. Um, we talked about job competition, people coming here to take our jobs. What are some other examples that you can think of of othering in our systems? Trying to get social services. Mm -hmm. They're here for the benefits, right? Unpaid taxes. They're a burden on the welfare system. They increase our health care costs. They're draining our social services. Someone mentioned it. They're, they're, they bring gangs and they're delinquents. They're drug dealers. They're violent criminals. So what are the impacts of this type of messaging on, on an immigrant population? We asked, can they feel safe, included, and welcomed in a country as long as this type of messaging is reinforced? Othering immigrants creates a need to react from a defensive position, erecting barriers, screening, and deterring defending borders, and effectively guarding against contact and confrontation. When people in authority, particularly governments, engage in other, it both defines and normalizes othering. And keep in mind, othering is not about liking or disliking someone or a group. It is a conscious or unconscious assumption that a particular group is a threat to the dominant or favored group. It is often driven by politicians and media as opposed to person contact. In fact, overwhelmingly, people do not know that those are othering. Othering is a threat to the things we value. You know, someone just mentioned it. When Mexicans can be called rapists and drug dealers in direct contradiction to the facts, it becomes a much easier step to call for their deportation and for a literal wall to divide us. This language not only ignites people's fears and anxiety, but it creates new methods of exclusion and dehumanization. People don't just decide on their own that. They just don't decide on their own that. They collectively, they need to be afraid of another group. Leadership is critical in making this happen. Othering is socially and culturally constructed which means that it's something that we can deconstruct. So where do we go from here? I just gave you a hefty history lesson <laughs> in a very short amount of time. And maybe I've made you angry and maybe I've made you aware and maybe I've made you sad. But how do we look back in history of othering and work in a present where that othering still exists? It exists in nearly the same form, just using more clandestine language. It is depressing. 
It is hard to wake up and do this work every day. But you know what's not hard? Waking up and trying to make this change, trying to move the needle just a little bit, realizing we have the capacity to stop othering. So this slide talks about where do we go from here? The opposite of othering, as Professor Powell says, it's not saving, it's belonging. Those of you who feel you belong to this community know that belonging does not mean same. It means recognizing and celebrating differences. It means building bridges. It means sitting down at the same dinner table as equals. It means questioning authority and their attempts at othering. Belonging must go beyond mere expression and lip service. We need to seek institutional change access to resources, integration and inclusion, sometimes special accommodations. It's important to realize as we attempt to remedy situations where groups have been othered in multiple ways, interventions that target just one form of disadvantage are not enough to disable barriers. Take immigrants, for example. Our agency here at LIA recognizes it is not enough to simply remedy one disadvantage legal status. We know from research, from years of work with immigrant people, that immigration status is only one piece of the puzzle. Immigrants are othered and disadvantaged in multiple ways, and simply fixing legal status is not going to help them step out from behind the barriers that stand in the way of their belonging. We know that this requires structural safeguards, institutional change, shared community vision, of a more inclusive society and complete rejection of the demonization of the other. True belonging, true inclusion, bring voice and dialogue to the othered. We are very pleased to hear that elected city council member Lynn Raymond talk about dialogue and the importance of bringing new voices to the table. We're pleased to hear that the creation of Ottawa County's Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Office which is headed by Robin, someone who truly, and I did not say her last name on purpose. I cannot say her last name. Um, someone who truly understands the intersectionality of bringing belonging and inclusion to other communities is also very heartening. It's time for us to create new and inclusive narrative for this county, this country and this county. I know this seems radical, but let's think back to the time when Irish was a racialized and othered group. It is now encompassed within the white identity. We have holidays and t-shirts that celebrate this, um, this heritage. While the goal is not to fold all identities into whiteness, these identities, the otherization of people groups are socially constructed. Again, meaning we have the power to create new inclusive narratives and reject those narratives narratives that position us against others. So this is a time where I'd like to stop and really have a conversation and maybe throw out some ideas how you can create new narratives as Justice Action Team, as UCC, as leaders in the community. How can we move the needle? Great question, Eva. Terrific presentation, and thanks for inviting us into uh, a really good question. How can we move the needle? So, folks, if you have a comment, feel free to uh, unmute and say that verbally, or you can post it in the chat as well. I see Lynn has her hand up. Go ahead, Lynn. You'll have to unmute. Yeah, and I'm sorry for leaving my mute button on. I was using my phone. Um, you know, I, I have um, worked on uh, developing relationships uh, over my 35, 40 years and approaching conversations with understanding instead of debating your issue or debating is what I found out is really seeking to understand the other person than attempting to have that conversation, especially when they are um, different than you or you're um, developing the relationship uh, instead of debating your side of the issue. 
And uh, that's one of the things I really work on constantly. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Lynn. Here are some ideas. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask you, I mean, we, we all, well, I'm assuming we all know a little bit about uh, Lighthouse Immigrant Advocates in terms of how you deal with individual cases, but are, can you say just a few words about the work you're doing kind of on a, on a more community-wide or global scale? I'm not as familiar about that. Thank you. Um, so this is actually perfect. So getting involved in your community care coalition is a coalition that's being um, it's start, being started by our founder. Um, her name is Sarah, and she is our founder and managing attorney here at Lighthouse Immigrant Advocates. She is forming a care coalition, Community Action for Racial Justice and Equity. So if you want to be added to this email list, um, email Sarah or let me know. And I also have my email here in a, in a slide coming up. Um, it's a broad-based community organizing um, coalition where they talk about community action for racial justice. What LIA is doing specifically is we are educating. Um, we are, you know, really to the people that want to know more, um, we're helping with the education component because advocacy is education. Um, and we attend, um, we attend local meetings council meetings where we talk about the the need and our support for things like the drive safe bill and we were the latest the last time we were present at a city council meeting was maybe like three three weeks ago our founder managing attorney was there and there was a plethora of of immigrants and migrant workers talking about the need for driver's license I mean we have all of these organizations, which are all doing great work, but you start peeling back the layers and, you know, it's, it's hard to put my child in after an after school program if I'm afraid to drive him there. It's hard to buy a house and buy from a local pizza shop if I don't know if I'm going to be living here tomorrow. You know, so then you start believing what we talked about, that you're part of this community, that you don't follow the rules, that you're illegal. And then you're like, well, yeah, I'll drive without a license because that's what I have to do, right? And then now you're breaking law and that's what they expect me to do. So that's what I'm going to do. Um, so that, I mean, those are just, I went off on a tangent. I'm pretty <laughs> passionate about the subject, but it's... Um, it's one of the ways that we get involved is advocacy. And thus far, it's been a lot stemming from our clients, from situations that we see happen with our cases. Um, and then we get involved. Our vision, you know, we are, we're five years young. So our vision is to have a more proactive approach in the future. But Gateways for Growth in Ottawa County is, um, is a grant that was given to the county managed by the DEI office of the county where we are also being involved and talking about how we can be a more inclusive and welcoming community. Um, immigrant, the Immigrant Relief Fund um, is in Grand Haven is also a good one to look up if you're you know, looking for resources in the area. Movimiento Cosecha in Holland is a uh, focuses on local initiatives um, that really help or drive the advocacy for undocumented folks. And I threw, you know, obviously our name in there because we're doing education, we're helping where we can. Um, and while we realize that changing one status is not going to make them welcomed and included into a community, that's that's one step. That's one one layer of it. Um, so at this point, I like to. It sounds like we're kind of already there. Open it up for questions. Um, I, I can't see the screen, but my hand's up. Um, is there here in Holland any watchdog group or any entity or community group that is monitoring 
the activities of ICE? Not of ICE. Um, our organization was involved a few years back in helping monitor the activity of the police department to see mm -hmm. um, if they were, in fact, using some sort of bias or, you know, um, targeting people of a certain group. And we did see um, we were able to identify such activity and be able to work with them. Um, to offer them that that data and to offer them um, some stuff. So we were able to work with them then. Um, not in terms of ICE. I don't think ICE is as um, friendly as we were hope, as we'd hope they'd be. Um, but somebody else did ask at one point, like, could we have some sort of um, open conversation with them? And, and you know, we, we are not there yet. Um, and I don't know. I don't know of any entity or group, but I'm certainly I'll write it down and see if there are other entities of groups. We try to not um, not bring kind of that type of work into our office so that we remain a trusted um, a trusted place uh, for immigrant and refugees. I just wanted to make a comment. Um, just in thinking about your uh, previous question, how can we um, encourage folks to to challenge um, their stereotypes. I think um, interacting uh, with individuals, getting to know somebody even just briefly with a, a name and a face and hearing their story um, really helps to um, individualize or personalize uh, uh, one person's story and helps to um, combat the othering by you know, just getting to know somebody who's part of that um, uh, ethnic group um, and has a particular experience, I know, and just in trying to learn more about other um, other Jews. Uh, for example, we, had, we held a, um, a session last month on um, transgender folks and just hearing one one or two people's experiences and struggles uh, really helps to, I think, um, challenge the stereotypes and uh, combat the, the generalizations. So I think that's something I'm hoping for. Absolutely. And one of the things that we talked about through the history of othering is the fear that it has been instilled in the community. So I think getting rid of that fear is definitely <coughs> a great step. And getting rid of that fear is getting to know maybe the community that you feel maybe you're biased or that you are um, that you maybe have some underlying fear that you didn't know about. Um, and just getting to know more about them and encouraging others to also know of the communities and the rich diversity that are our city and neighboring counties have. I'm wondering, Eva, if you have information about um, COVID and the seasonal farm workers who typically come to our area, are there any particular provisions in place for um, their care, whether it be vaccination or otherwise? Do you, has there been conversations about that? I know that the county has a um, a group that's open um, to everyone to try to get vaccinated. Migrant workers are definitely um, a group that is welcome there. We're basically trying to get everyone at this point vaccinated, who um, except for children uh, who qualify, um, which at this point, I guess, except for children is everyone. It, migrant workers is part of that, and that's uh, that's an intentional step that the county is taking to ensure that they get vaccinated. Whether it's making it out there, um, and the reality, you know, even with our clients, um, the vaccine is just having a slower. Um, they're taking up the vaccine at a, a slower pace than um, than what we'd hope. I could probably share with you that um, I'm on the COVID vaccine task force. This is Lynn. And last week, uh, we've been intentionally 
setting up these um, vaccine clinics in different areas in the community where the populations um, are probably lower income because, or they just haven't had a chance to um, go to a vaccine clinic. And we held one on the north side at Intersection Ministries and 58% um, were minorities, uh, 55% were uh, people under 18 years old, and it was a real successful one. So there's, mm-hmm. I'm on the side, and uh, St. Vincent's, of course, one, two, and they're being everywhere. Uh, and um, they uh, have been fairly successful, continue to have those areas are trusted. I'm sorry, I did stop sharing my screen, but if you want our contact information, just let me know and I will throw it on the chat um, or ensure that Brian and UCC has our information so that you can contact us, ask questions. And if you do have individual cases that you want to run by us, that's, um, you know, you can always call and see if we can have an appointment with, um, thank you, Brian, um, with our staff attorney. Have you... You bring up an interesting dilemma. This is backing up a little bit from what we can do immediately, though it does have to do with advocating for immigrants. Um, you you talked about exploitation of immigrants in relation to labor force and that kind of thing, which and you know, and that the argument of you know they're here for the labor, we need them, and so forth is is part of that othering. Um, which I'm sure I've been guilty of in terms of, you know, arguing the, the sort of the, the case for, uh, for immigrants. Um, so, I mean, that just was a, that's a, that's a helpful thing to think about. Uh, on the other hand, one, you know, one does need to counter the, the stereotype or the misinformation that they're here for our jobs and they're a drain on the economy and all that stuff when they're a, when they're a net boost to the economy. Um, so I was sort of struggling with how do you, how do you change the narrative, the value of immigrants just as, as, as people um, and, and yet counter that, that false narrative about them being a drain on the, on the economy, et cetera, et cetera, and trying to take our jobs and say when we need them for jobs, et cetera. Um, I just, you know, you've presented me with a, just kind of a dilemma there. Um, Right. It's an interesting challenge and we don't have the answers for everything, uh, but we would, one of the things that we do to connect with donors, to connect with the community is um, talk about the narrative in ways that, your audience understands. So we talked about how this is being um, essentially putting a lot of people in detainment centers and putting a burden on the court system um, and making a lot of money for private institutions that are incarcerating people. Um, So talk about the billions of dollars that taxpayers are doing. Like these are taxpayer dollars that are going into the detainment of these people. Like if we could save that money and, you know, put it towards education, put it towards uh, towards meals, towards kids, you know, we could be doing a lot of, of greater good than getting rid of criminals. And that's the idea is the, the idea that, um, you know, somebody coming to this country wasn't criminalized until a certain point in history. And then it was only criminalized because they did something that was against like our, the new rules, right? And now you're marked as a criminal. That's what they mean when they say criminals, but it's not like they're, like we said, like they're not gang related. They're not anything related. I mean, the likelihood that, um, that Latino families or Hispanic families are going to be terrorist on U.S. soil is very, very low. So, so yeah, so I don't, I don't know the answer, but I, I, when we talk and we try to relate to people, we talk about all the aspects of the narrative, you know, while we hope that stories are heartfelt by everyone, it sometimes isn't. Sometimes people aren't 
told by somebody's story by moms and dads being torn apart by children growing up without their grandparents or parents. That's sometimes that doesn't, that doesn't face someone. So we have to talk in, in the language that they understand. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks again for the uh, historical overview. So helpful. Uh, such a reminder, even if familiar to us, because we can so be in the moment and, you know, during the previous administration, uh, sort of imagine all the worst things happening in a four-year window when the reality is there's been uh, challenges for immigrants for so long, regardless of uh, political leadership in this country, that it's unfortunately a part of our DNA. And we have to continually uh, work to Uh, be the kind of community and society we want. And a good reminder for all of us that even if we like some of what happened in this past election, it doesn't mean we don't have a ton of work to do every day still. Mm -hmm. On on the other hand, about immigrants, we have a fair number of Irish people crossing the Canadian border illegally and very successfully living in the United States without without being criminalized. I mean, I, to me, that is just such an obvious example of the racism that is involved in what we're doing south of the border. Mm-hmm. I, and I have nothing against the Irish. I, you know, I'm not picking on them, but, you know, if, if you're white, these things don't apply. You're not otherized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we talked about it in a little bit of the presentation. It is definitely based on geographically where people would be crossing from. You brought up the driver's license issue, and I totally agree that that's really central to um, you know, just providing a measure of safety for those that are here. Um, is there any movement? on that at the state level? I've not heard, is there? No, it, we haven't heard. And the it locally um, city council said that they have to look at their bylaws and they misplace them. And so <laughs> looking at their bylaws to see if they, they can support such um, such plan. And, and, and I think it just, I think they're just trying to buy time to see maybe, maybe there is genuine, curiosity whether they can or not um, but these things do get delayed and especially when there isn't a wide range of support um, from different levels. City of Grand Rapids it is on record as supporting mm-hmm. uh, the driver li- driver's license. I don't know about the county commission but the city commission is mm-hmm. which, which is a fairly big step. Um, I mean they're, they're not an unprogressive group but still still it's an important push. So yeah, this, I mean, that's certainly one action step. If to, at least it gets the, it certainly gets the, um, it gets the issue out there and allows a lot of uh, other, you know, looking at it much more broadly than just uh, driver's licenses, but why and so forth. Yeah, even looking at our local schools, um, you know, kids of immigrants and refugees who think they are supposed to act a certain way because they're they're being told that they are bad or that they don't know or, you know, things like that. And so they start acting like that. And if you think about it in the terms of children, if children do it, we do it too. We just mask it better than children, right? So if you're telling a child that you're bad at it, you're bad at it, you're bad at it, are they going to try? And, you know, are they going to contribute to their their class and their education? So I think it, it goes beyond the adults. I think you need to think, we need to think of immigrants and, and refugees as families. That's, that's who we are. And that's, you know, that's who we all are. Um, and it affects more than just an adult making a decision, it affects the whole family. How do people who are new to this area and needing your assistance, how how do they learn of you, of your agency? Yeah, right now it's all word of mouth. Um, Really, it's just us educating. And if you know of us, um, we do have a phone number, we have a website. 
Facebook, social media, we don't, um, unfortunately are not at the point where we, we market what we do because we are at capacity. We are full. We know the need is there and that's why we're trying to grow. Um, and we do focus on education a lot, you know, because, um, we're here, um, but we don't market just because we know that there's a ton of, ton of need out there, but we're always taking cases. Um, if you know anything about the kind of the, the legal system, like you take a case, they can take years. Um, so just the fact that we have so many cases doesn't mean that we have a lot of solved um, and cases that have been at resolution. Um, but we can take a look at cases. Um, we do renewals from all over the state of Michigan. Um, we, because of Zoom and the way things have been going, um, we're able to do any renewals through the all throughout the state, but any bigger, more complex case, we do remain local. So Ottawa, Allegan, um, and then some Kent County as well. Um, so Muskegon, we're kind of localized. Um, we're the only ones in Ottawa County doing the work that we're doing. There are very similar organizations in Grand Rapids, um, but we're the only ones in Ottawa County. I, I do have another question uh, too, actually. Um, are you using pro bono work by local attorneys, A and B? How many staff attorneys do you have? We have one and a half staff attorneys. We are in the process of hiring one more. Um, and we do work with local agencies um, who donate or take on cases. Typically, they are only taking one case year or a quarter, things like that. Um, the way that we work, the way that we provide our, our services is that if you are below up to 200% of the federal uh, poverty guidelines, um, you are basically at a nominal fee. Um, if you're familiar with law, law office services, um, our, cons our consults are $40, um, where a I, I have my own immigration story and I went through a private um, lawyer in Grand Rapids where the consult was $500 just to hear to see if they would take my case, right? And so we are at a much, much um, lower than that nominal fee, very accessible. Um, if you are above the 200% federal poverty guideline, you are then giving a, a sliding scale. So you're never truly paying those for-profit uh, fees. And then we also have two different funds. We have an emergency fund that we that we fundraise for that essentially anybody that needs to get through the process that doesn't have access to the um, to the funds. And right now we're giving, you know, it's based on fundraising. So right now um, we typically um, allow applications about twice twice every every six months. Um, where we can give up to $1,500 or $3,000 um, based on your case. We also have a victim advocacy fund. So if you know of somebody that's been a victim of um, abuse of any sort, um, they are automatically protected by that fund and we can take their case. Would you have a suggestion of a documentary or a movie for us to view as a follow-up learning opportunity and for discussion? Um, I did. I had talked to Julia initially, and she had just passed along the information about the Undocumented Americans book, which is really powerful. Um, but wondering if you would also have a suggestion about a documentary. Yes. Did you email me? I'm so sorry, but I did have. I did look it up. I just didn't email you back. I'm sorry. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> I was just um, going to give you a heads up about that, that I might ask you that tonight. So you didn't need to reply. <laughs> it's called Which Way Home? It's a little bit older. So 2009, you know, um, which to me, that still seems like yesterday. But um, Which Way Home? It's an HBO documentary. You can probably find find it on, um, on Amazon Prime as well. Um, and it's about... Um, kids, and it deals a lot, I think a lot, like you'll be reminded of a lot about the current border crisis that we kind of talked about um, and kids um, leaving their country in Central America and going through Mexico and trying to come to the U.S. Thank you. 
Thank you. And Amy, can you remind us of the title of the book that was recommended for folks who have interest? The book is The Undocumented Americans, and it is, um, there's an NPR blurb about it. We could probably share that. Julia shared that with me so you can listen to her. Really, it's kind of a quick read, and it gives um, stories of day laborers, kind of undocumented Americans who aren't like the famous heroes, but just kind of the everyday stories of people. It's pretty powerful. Mm. So. Thank you. I think maybe we have time for one last uh, question if Eva has time. Uh, so if, you, if you've got something that you'd like to ask, now's the time. I'll ask if nobody else has something. If you could say a wish of what you would like us all to do going forward, is there something that pops into your mind like immediately? I don't think I have the, the one thing, you know, moving forward. Um, you are leaders in a, a faith-based community. So, I mean, I understand that you've been probably told us many times and in your own way, if you can be welcoming to all communities, um, I think that would be great. It just, it really is as little as helping somebody open the door, or if you see somebody struggling with their children, they're crying, you know, instead of walking by, be like, hey, can I help you? It's it's smiling. It's, you know, people are a mirror of what you do physically. So if you smile at them, they'll smile back at you. Um, it doesn't have to be so intensive to, you know, to try and help a family and open up your house and it doesn't have to be that way. We just have to be welcoming. We just, it's basically giving the benefit of the doubt to everyone, not just those that look like you. Um, so I guess it's not a one thing. It's it's being welcoming. I, um, I have my own immigration story, but I can tell you my mom didn't feel welcome in this community and she didn't ever find the resources in the language, in the language that she needed and thus, like, things just, like, snowballed after that. So, you know, no one's going to come up and tell you that they need help. I can tell you from, from firsthand experience, immigrant and refugee communities are live in fear. And sometimes it's the type of fear that it's irrational. So they don't, they believe everyone if they look different, everyone is out to get them. They believe that, the, oh, which it does, the phone is listening to you, right? And so they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to discuss anything. They don't want to tell you they need anything. So I don't, I think it'll be harder to try to reach out and help, you know, someone by, by doing something specifically for them. But I think to be welcoming, that's not, that's not a hard ask. That's not a, that's not a hard sell um, to really, and not go out of your way, right? Like to say, oh, that person's brown. I'm going to open the door for that person, but not this person. <laughs> Just kind of doing it for all. That's the, the welcoming community that we're, we're looking for. Um, and yeah, I, I hope that answers that's good. And what about supporting uh, local Latino-owned businesses or encouraging people to um, who are running for a local position, let's say school board or county commission, that kind of thing? How, how helpful is that kind of thing? I definitely think it's very helpful. Um, I myself, so we did a different, I did a different presentation and they asked, you know, when does advocacy become um, structural change? And, and, you know, when do you, stop advocating and start running for office. And it's a thing where it's like, well, I didn't know I could do that. What do you mean I can do that? And so to see people that look like you in certain positions encourages others to also be like that. I'm an immigrant myself. I was born in Mexico. I came here when I was 12. I didn't know I could be an executive director. And I was in shock when it became a reality. And then now I have to draw from my experience and talk passionately and to advocate. So my my take is I'm amplifying that voice for those that are fearful to have that voice. But yes, absolutely, to see people that look like you 
um, for children to see people that look like you for, you know, in, in certain positions where we haven't seen them um, is powerful. Beautifully said. Well, thank you so much for your time uh, on behalf of Holland UCC and our Justice Action team. Really grateful for the information, for your time, for your own story. Uh, very helpful for us. And uh, we'll make this available for folks who missed any part of it or weren't able to join us tonight. So look for that uh, coming up on our YouTube channel. And uh, we'll continue to find ways to support Lighthouse immigrant advocates and uh, immigrants and refugees in our communities. So thank you, Eva. Yes, thank you so much for inviting us. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet everyone. Have a great night, everybody. to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. streaming on Facebook. You can also watch these messages on the Holland UCC YouTube channel. And for more information, how to get involved or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org. Mm-hmm.